welcome you to episode 29 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight into others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. In this episode, we discover that my guest began his career in the industry some 41 years ago and discover how his company started, what services they offer today, what challenges he has faced, his high points, what changes he would like to see in the industry, and he has a few that will raise an eyebrow or two, and we discuss the current driver shortage. And as always, we end with a funny moving story. In fact, two, and you won't want to miss them. My guest this episode is John Burridge, Managing Director of Richardson Moving and Storage. Enjoy. Good afternoon, John. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, Colin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to Moving Matters. <laughs> the number of times I've listened to that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the ending, though. Keep moving. <laughs> Can you tell everyone about yourself and the length of time in the industry? Yeah, so um, I've been in the industry 41 years with the same business. I live in a little village in North Yorkshire, married to the wonderful Row. Got two sons, Josh and Tom, two rescue dogs, Inca and Rio, a lurcher and a patterdale, three cats, two horses. I'm at the bottom of the pecking order in the house, obviously, but I'm much higher than I used to be <laughs> when the chickens died. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get time for all these animals and that when you've got a removal company? I don't. I, don't, I walk the dogs on the weekend and uh, stroke the cats. Uh, that's about it, really. I don't get involved with any of the other stuff. What about the horses? Do you not ride the horses? No, big stupid things, honestly. <laughs> they don't help you with removals then? No, they don't. Actually, the person that does ride them is looking at me very disdainfully. <laughs> She's gone now. So how did you get started in the industry 41 years ago? It's probably easier to tell a brief history of our company as to how I got started in it. So history of my father, really. So he was the one that started the business. He was born in 1927. He was the youngest of four kids. His dad was a miner. And when he was two-year-old, his dad was blinded in a mining accident. Oof. In the Durham coal fields, I don't think life got much tougher than that. There were six of them lived in this two-roomed house that had wooden sides. And he became a clerk in the mine uh, about age 13. And then he... Went off to do his national service in India. And when he came back, he went back into the colliery, but was looking to move up. And there was a position came up at Pickford's in Newcastle as um, a clerk. So he went for that. And then quickly he got onto a management course and sent him off to the Bradford Management School. And he did okay there. And then his first posting, I think, was Morecambe. And then he moved up to Darlington, then York, and then eventually Leeds. And yeah, he did really well. He was a strange bloke, though, in that. <laughs> <laughs> and this was all at Pickford's? This was all at Pickford's. He got passed over for a job at Hartlepool, the, the branch at Hartlepool. It's amazing how many branches they had back then. Yeah. Uh, and he got yeah. that peed off that he um, 
bought a fruit and veg shop and packed in. But he'd only been gone about six weeks. And Bob Cook, the manager at Newcastle, rang him up and said, uh, will you come back? And he said, yes, I will, but only if I can borrow the van three days a week to pick some fruit and veg up from the market at six o'clock in the morning before I come to work. Really? <laughs> yeah. And they let him. Then about a couple of years later, he went for a, an area manager's job. One of the big wigs asked him, because I think it was all area managers and the big chief was there. And they said, oh, you, you bought a shop. He said, how did you get the money to buy a shop? And he said, well, I didn't steal it from Pickford, so it's bugger all to do with you. <laughs> well, that, and that's the type of man he was, really. Needless to say, he didn't get the job. So he was in Leeds in about 63, and the colliery was closing down, and his brother-in-law worked in the colliery as a mechanic. And I think my dad was really peed off at Pickford's and that he didn't suffer fools gladly, and there was lots of arguments with upper management. So he suggested to his brother-in-law that they bought this bankrupt company called Richardson. And they did that, and they got rid of the chaff, and they kept the wheat, and they pulled it round, and they did very well for 10 years. They bought a big mill down there and converted it into a 55,000-square-foot warehouse. They had 30 trucks. They run some of the first draw bars. They did lots of theatrical work. I remember going with my dad, touring the doily cart all over the country, and hair and you know fiddler on the roof big shows like that it was great fun but then then morris suddenly was very poorly got a brain tumor and was dead within three months jeez and it's a bit of a theme in my father's life and that he didn't get on with his sister (laughs) there's another one he didn't get on with and so cut a long story short he basically sold the assets of the business kept going for a bit and then decided it wasn't for him so he just mothballed the company name and retired and then when i was 18 and failing my a-levels he said uh, well do you fancy buying a van and we'll uh, we'll start up doing a removal business so when i was 18 in 1980 we bought a, an old van off wh williams of spennymoor that's an old name and we started up and uh, just that one van uh, he applied for an operator's license straight away he knew what he was doing he had the financial nous and the experience, and I just provided the muscle. So on the afternoon of my maths A-level exam, we did a removal on the morning, and I did my maths A-level in the afternoon. <laughs> and so that's how I got into the business. And basically, I, was, I enjoyed the high life too much at college and uh, was failing my A-levels. And he was bored, so we just started from there. So you now run and own Richardson's? So it's a family business, and five years ago, Josh, my eldest son, decided that he was in a very similar position to what I was, but he was a fair bit older. And he really said he really fancied coming into the business, and he came in five years ago, and he's been absolutely fabulous. It's now a proper family business again, in which he owns a fair chunk of it, and uh, my wife and I own the rest. And will Tom be joining at some point? Tom's a civil engineer, and he, I'd love him to join because he's, Josh and I are very hands-on practical people, whereas Tom's a very organized, methodical person. But I suspect he won't. I think the thoughts of working with his brother and his dad are just too much for him. Having my dad 
the character that he was, it made me a better person and manager in that I saw everything that he did and was determined not to do the same. Although he was very successful when he, you know, at his prime, he was very, very old school. Uh, that would have been disastrous. But that's not a bad thing. It's not, but not. it, it is in the days of industrial tribunals and um, litigious clients, things like that. It would, have been a, it would have been a disaster. When your father had his company with the 30 trucks, 55,000 square foot warehouse, was that purely then removals? I mean, you mentioned about doing the, the theatre stuff. Was it removals or was it general haulage, transportation? So it, it started off as removals and then eventually it morphed. So they did removals. Office moving, they did, a, they did a big shipping department where they made their own giant crates. I remember putting giant crates on the back of trucks and manufacturing them, going in and doing that. That was great fun. But eventually they morphed into van haulage. And I think it was actually a good thing that they, they finished when they did because van haulage was how it was. And then our ticks came along and they weren't really set up for our ticks. They had no experience. So I think possibly they got out at a good time. The business that we run now is exactly the same limited company as was then. It was just put into, just made dormant really for a while. So tell everybody about your company and the services it offers then, John. Uh, so we're Richardson Moving in Storage. We've got our own 25,000 square foot freehold warehouse on our own site. Started building there in uh, 1995. We've got 560 containers and about 8,000 square feet of self-storage rooms. We were in four trucks and two vans, but we have 12 full-time staff on the vehicles, which I think is a pretty unusually high ratio. We offer a, what we like to think is a high-class service. We're proud BAR members. We do office moving, international moving, but all through agents, so we'll use people like John Mason or Fox for international work. And we've stopped going to Europe. We just sub that out to, to the experts, really. It's just too much hassle. And the older I get, the less, the less I can be bothered with hassle. Can you see yourself going back into Europe or is it just a case of, no, just pass it off and, and make yeah. a few quid on the side? Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. There's all the hassles of the regulations now, customs. Then you get the problems at the ports with, um, you know, violence and people trying to break into trucks and I, I just think it's more trouble than it's worth unless you're doing it big style yeah yeah how are you finding self-storage uh so we got into it at a really early stage we started in 2002 but we couldn't be bothered to open at weekends really so <laughs> <laughs> weekends are time off oh yeah so we've got a lot of good corporate customers in there that fill up big spaces but it's not something I think that we're looking to expand. It's fine as it is, but I really, I, I don't like it as a, as a storage option. I always try and talk people into containerized storage. What is it that you don't like about self-storage, if you don't mind me asking? It's the number of times goods are handled, the distance you have to walk it. It's just the fact that once it's, once it's in a storage container on the truck, then that seal's secured and it's covered in blankets and, if you're putting stuff into self-store, who provides the blankets, who provides the packaging materials? Containerized storage is much, much quicker than self-storage as well. 
Do you think clients like the self-storage option because they think that they've got access to it or they can get access to it on a more regular basis when at the end of the day, you know damn well they're never going to want to access it? Yeah, I'm convinced that, that many do. And I try and talk them out of it. I say, look, if you want the, if you want the cheapest self-storage option, you buy the smallest room. And if you want something out of that room, you've got to unload the room until you get what you want. Yeah. Try and tell them if it's something that you want out of the containerized storage, you know in advance, we'll just detail it on the inventory in which container it's in. I also don't like the idea of people being on our premises as well. I'm a bit of a miserable old curmudgeonly get, really. <laughs> no, you're not. Do you do document storage or anything like that? Shredding? Shredding seems to be the big thing at the moment. We thought about it, but there's only so much you can shred, isn't there? And I think, I think it'll be quite big for the next three or four years, but then I think most of the old stuff will have been shredded and most people will be going on to digital storage format. The big companies seem to have ridiculous rates that smaller companies must struggle to compete with. We do document storage. It's not managed. It's basically we let off some big rooms. But I have to say, a lot of that's starting to go out now with Restore and stealing most of it. That's a bit disingenuous. Smaller companies get bought out by bigger companies who have contracts with people like Restore. So then the document storage starts to go out. That'll actually hit us quite a bit come the end of the year because there's quite a bit going out. We used to be members of the commercial moving group, but honestly, Teesside is where we're based. There's just nothing going on. There's so little investment. There's so little moving commercially. So again, we don't do much commercial moving anymore either. So it's mainly domestic household moving. Absolutely, yeah. That's the bread and butter at the yeah. end of the day. And we do it to the very best of our ability. And that's, I think, why we've done well over the years. Recessions come along and I think still a market there for people that, who do it really well and who have that ethos that the customer is the most important factor. So what challenges have you had to overcome then? Oh, challenges. Oh, it's a deep sigh, that is. I think there's been a few. So I would say one of the big challenges we've had is trying to offer a high-class service in probably the UK's most deprived area. So we're based in Teesside, and the, the social deprivation in Teesside is quite frightening. There are some nice areas, but we've just got to try and travel a bit further to North Yorkshire and South Durham and West Durham to try and get those nice jobs. That's been a big challenge. You know, I really wish we'd been in Leeds or Newcastle, where I think there is so much more opportunity. But I'm not complaining. Another challenge, I think, was working with my father, who, although I cannot, I can't understate the effort that he put in when he really didn't need to for my benefit, but he was a very difficult man to work with. We fought like cat and dog. I remember once I had a knee reconstruction when I was young. I was doing my CPC training, so for my transport manager qualification, he didn't think I was revising hard enough, so an argument developed in the lounge. It ended up with him throwing the work diary at me, which hit me on the point of the operation and delved in the, <laughs> delved in the plaster, so that was sticking in this, the graft that I'd had. So I, <laughs> as I fell over... I launched my crutch at him and, and it flew like an arrow and the rubber sucker hit him right in the middle of the forehead. Oh, my word. So mother came in. I was on the floor 
in agony, screaming. Father was half unconscious on the floor with this red sucker mark on his head. It was that just sort of summed up our relationship. Really. I remember when uh, when he died, one of his old friends came up to me that knew him through business and said, "They said uh, it was a great man, your dad." He said, "John, he said, uh, but do you know what the difference between your dad and a terrorist was?" I said, "I don't know. I don't know what is it." He said, "You could negotiate with a terrorist." <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. So, what's your working relationship like with Josh? It's really good. It's really good. Uh, we occasionally shout at each other, but nothing, nothing major. Nothing gets thrown. No. <laughs> so, back on the challenges. As I've not heard many people talk about COVID really as a challenge. But I think COVID has been the biggest challenge we've ever faced as a company and as a group of people. Yes, it's been brilliant, but I remember on the 23rd of March closing the doors and just hugging Josh and crying, never knowing if you'd open up again. You didn't know what was going to happen in the world. It was truly unique. And then since we came back, you know, we would have people working from home. I'd have two phones on my desk one for the call and one to try and make note of the number that you'd missed. It was just horrendous. Staff working in bubbles, testing, trying to organize the diary, keeping people in bubbles. I don't think anybody's talked about how hard it's been and it's been bloody hard. And I remember one lad wanting a day off work and I tried for two hours to reorganize the diary for the following week to try and rearrange bubbles, which we could rearrange at weekends if people had been 48 hours clear and I, and I couldn't do it and I, I gave it to Josh he cut up lots of bits of paper and moved them about and eventually he came up with a solution but that was all because somebody wanted a day off you know we'd I'd drive home and just burst into tears in the car on the way home just because of the stresses of, of, of work and one good thing was that you would talk to people like that you'd not spoken to, but somehow I'd got get chatting to like Mark Chudley or Malcolm and Ian Ingram or David Appleyard, you know, different people, and you'd just talk to them. And you'd realize that they, they were all suffering the same. And then we, there was a yep. lot of fear. Everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's in the same boat, and that made it feel better. And I know we've probably all made a lot of money, but my God, it's been so tough mentally. It's been really tough. But do you think it's changed the industry at all for the better? Um, I like to think that we talk to each other more and perhaps we work together a bit closer. I think one really good thing that I hope will come out of it is that people will realise how much money they make by putting their prices up. Not to a ridiculous level, but just to a level where you're getting the rate that you should be getting for employing people. You know, if it costs you £15 an hour to employ somebody, which business in the right mind sells them out at £18 an hour? It's daft, you know, you've got to be having 25 You've got to cost them out at £25, £30 an hour. And hopefully people will have seen the benefits of being, getting the money you deserve and perhaps not being as busy as you normally were. And the, But then you find out you've actually made more money in the end, which is what it's all about. So hopefully that will have changed the business. I kind of hope as well that the general public 
their perception of the industry has changed as well with everything that they, that now goes on. And you know, whereas before you'd probably send out a crew of three, four men, you know, do a job in a day. Now it's the case of no, no. Well, back in COVID times, you'd only send out two guys, and it would be a two-day job. Yeah, but I think that has to be driven by the, the companies. They have to change the clients' perception. They have to yeah, ex- definitely. They have to explain why they're doing things differently. I mean, we've done a lot with with late keys and things like that. If you've got eighteen hundred cubic feet to deliver and you're waiting for the keys, what we'll always do now is the day before we might load three or four containers into store and then go out and do an eight hundred move on the day of the key change, and then the next day we'll bring those four containers back in the morning. And it takes a lot of planning and it costs a bit more, but the crew are not working at eight and nine o'clock at night and getting pissed off. Yeah. And at the end, the client will turn around to us and say, I I didn't like it at first, but I can see why you did it that way. It's much better. It just takes a lot of the stress out of the job. And I think we have to try and get over to the client why we do things and which is the best way to do things for everybody and why it costs a bit more. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. If you could change anything from your past, what would it be? It's going to sound a bit soppy, but if there's one thing I'd change, it would be the fact that my father, who we're talking about again, I must have some type of complex, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) That he died a couple of years. Well, you know, if he'd just hung on for another year or so, he'd have seen Josh come into the business. And that would have meant so much to him to know that another generation was taking on the mantle, personally speaking. There's lots of things I'd change about the industry. Well, funny you should say that. So we'll come to that one in a minute. (laughs) What is your high point of being in the industry? Oh, I think it comes down to things like buying your first new van. You know, that'll be one. C239X year. New Mazda. <laughs> People always remember the registration place. Ah, uh, yeah. Again, I had a massive row with my dad. He wouldn't pay for container doors. And lo and behold, within the next and about 16 months after that, we bought two more, both with five pallet container doors. So that was a high point. I think building a new warehouse, that was a high point. Yeah. But the one job that I remember was working with Mike Devereaux when Cleveland County Council split into four separate councils. And Mike and I worked together in an office at the council headquarters, planning and organizing all the moves. It was just such huge fun, just so exciting. And Mike had such a wealth <laughs> of knowledge and he was such a great, or he is such a great bloke. I learned a huge amount and I hope he enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, we had, I remember one night we got a phone call about five o'clock from a council employee said, oh, there's a lease runs out on the building at midnight tonight and we forgot to tell you, we've got to have it empty. <laughs> and we had like 60, 70 blokes that we'd pulled in because there was we were organising us, Devereaux's, Pickford's and Pearson's. There's another name from the past. And we were, you know, running furniture down the stairs and down in the lifts and then running blokes back up in the lifts. And we got it all fin- empty by half 11 at night. It was very exciting. Those were great days. So I think operationally wise, that would be my highlight. It was just such fun. Back in the day. 
Now, I'd normally at this point would ask, what one thing would you change within the moving industry? But I guess from two questions ago, there's a few things you'd like to change in the industry. So let's go for it, John. What would you like to change in the industry? Okay, so we, we talked earlier about pricing. And I, I've heard a lot of people on about pricing. I think we all agree that three and a half ton outfits have got much lower running costs than we have. But a bigger problem for us is the charge is the pricing of larger companies. You know, I've heard people on your podcast saying what they charge. And Josh has listened to some of them and he says to me, he said, um, he said, I've listened to some podcasts with Colin. He said, and I've listened to some stuff that's <laughs> written in the removals and storage and stuff that you hear at the removals and storage show. He said, why do people tell so many lies? The bigger companies, they're working sometimes, they must be working below cost. And they engage in big contracts with corporate jobs. And they'll say, oh, I'd, you know, we want 1,800 cube with a full pack from A to B. And I'll go, well, how much is in it? And they'll give me a price. And I'll say, well, I might do it if you double the price. The prices they charge, sometimes the bigger companies, uh, no, nobody questions it, but they're a joke. They really are. How do they make any money is beyond me, completely beyond me. So that's one thing I would change, pricing. I have to ask, is that a recent thing or is that a long-term thing? Because having been associated with the industry in the past with another removal company, we would get the odd contract, which, yeah, okay, money wasn't great when you were busy, but when you're quiet, money was better than no money. Uh... So obviously that contract kept us going through the winter months when you know you, there weren't that many removals around. But in the summer, we'd often look at it and think, oh, well, I can make more money doing domestic moves. But you still had to do that odd job once or twice I, a week. I honestly don't know the rates they charge, how they make any money. The only way they can make money is by flogging the trucks, flogging the staff and producing a lower quality service. You can't offer uh, the money they're charging. You cannot offer a high quality service. It's not possible. Simple as that. Anyhow, that's my one bug bet. Three and a half tonners obviously need regulating. So it's got a regulation. Oh, definitely. Three and a half tonners need regulating. Uh, sooner that comes, the better. I know there's lots of really good movers out there, but you can't be a really good mover if you put in 600 cube or 500 cube on a three and a half ton van because it's just overloaded. No, you, you, you're right. And, and three and a half tonners have come up in the podcast several times. And I don't think anybody's saying we should just get rid of three and a half tonners. It's a case of three and a half tonners have their place in the industry, but they need to be utilized correctly. That's the thing. Uh, couldn't agree more. They're a fabulous tool and they're indispensable to any mover. But if you put your 18 tonner across the weighbridge at Scotch Corner and it weighs 19 and a half tons, you're going to get absolutely pilloried by the by DVSA. And you could end up losing your license, your whole yeah. your whole business. If you get pulled with a, a low loader and you're overweight, you pay the fine. And that's the difference, I think. It just comes down to money. Well, hopefully that will change soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. I'd love to see the skill of being a removal man regulated. I'm not saying gas safe or anything like that, but we need to recognize the skills of our really good people. Oh, how do we do that? Well, again, getting back to Mike Devereaux, he, uh, he came up with an idea of an Australian type of accreditation in the past, and there was various badges produced. But we need to be recognised at government level, not just industry and association level, I think. 
there's got to be some type of recognition. Because if you look at some of the good mover boys out there, they have an incredible skill set. They can take goods worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, pack them up, load them, transport them, unpack them, and they're in perfect condition. Yeah. You know, they've got inventory skills, they've got people skills, they've got customer services skills. How anybody can't think that's not a skillful job, I don't know. And all done at the most stressful time of a person's life. Absolutely. All movers will be the same. How stressed do people get when they're moving? And it's up to us to calm them down and our staff to calm them down. I'd also like to see, I know BE are working on it in this working group that they're in, but we had 1360 Cube that was cancelled at four o'clock this afternoon, a local move for tomorrow. And it's a joke, isn't it? The punter has been shafted by government for a using a system that's not fit for purpose. The whole conveyancing system is just incredibly awful. The biggest purchase you'll ever make, and it's a joke. So whatever the BAR are doing, they need to hurry up and do it a bit quicker because this is just, it's beyond, it's beyond pathetic at the minute. We need to have the time that you hand over the keys needs to be regulated. The money needs to be in place and swapped over at 8 o'clock in the morning somehow. And we need two weeks between exchange and completion. It's not rocket science, and it is easily achievable. Yes. You know, it's just easy to do. I don't know why they don't do it. I don't know what's wrong. Probably old-fashioned ways. We have the technology, and everything is in place to transfer money quickly. So it shouldn't be an issue transferring funds. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. And if there's some type of central holding account that's government-run or whatever, all the money goes into that the day before, and then bang, bang, bang. It all just get once it's in there, it's guaranteed. And then you have to be out for one o'clock, otherwise you get fined 150 quid an hour. That might wake the um, solicitors up a bit. Yeah, and it might make people realise that you can't do your local move in one loot and van, and you can't. Yeah. You, you'll struggle to do the move yourself, which would be a good thing for the industry, I think. We'll have a lot more work. What's your views on the current driver shortage? My views are that it's it's not a Brexit thing at all. Well, I'm a pro-Remainer. It's nothing to do with Brexit. It's due to the fact that we've disrespected and shafted drivers for as long as we can remember and that nobody wants to do the job, and justifiably so, especially in removals. I can't believe that people want to work staff 65, 70 hours a week and send them away three or four nights shifting and humping furniture. It's cruel. It is absolutely cruel. And the fact that we send drivers away and they don't have any facilities, there's nowhere to park, there's nowhere to get a shower, nobody wants trucks. I don't... It's The industry has survived on cheap labor and they've fed that need by using EU labor that was cheap. The fact that that labor is gone, okay, Brexit has caused that a little bit, but that's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem are the working conditions of drivers. And I couldn't agree more. Even today, I noticed there was um, an article released on the BBC's website about one driver being given a 40% pay rise. Mm. 
Tom Reddy has been driving lorries for more than 15 years and his pay was recently increased from £17.50 an hour to £24.50 an hour, a 40% jump. But his response to that is, you could pay me £80,000 a year and it wouldn't be enough, I want to leave. And he does literally cite things like the conditions and the hours and, and everything else. Just what you've mentioned. I think times have changed, Colin, in that people, men especially, want to spend time at home with their families. They want to have a social life. It's not all about work. You know, the days of sending kids up chimneys and people working seven, 15-hour days a week down mill, they're gone. They're in the past. There's a reason for the 48-hour working week and periods of availability are being abused. A lot of drivers are working 60, 70 hours a week and unloading is classed as a period of availability. No wonder we can't get drivers. We just have ourselves to blame. Our staff, they don't want to go away, but they don't mind occasionally. They don't want to finish late because most of their mates aren't going away and aren't finishing late. They want to earn a decent wage under decent working conditions. And driving an HGV for most employers doesn't involve that. I think that's come more to the forefront in recent times, hasn't it? Because years ago, I'd like to go away because I won't be with my wife and family. So yeah, yeah. But that was the truth. I can go away. I can park up. I can maybe have a little shandy or whatever. But, but now they do want, as you say, they do want to stay at home. They, you know, they want more family life. They want to be out with their friends who are working nine till five. Yeah. What removal man works nine till five, for goodness sake? Yeah, but that's what they want. We were clearing out the office the other day and we came across an old wages book and it had hours in there that staff were working. This was 15, 20 years ago and it was 65 hours a week every week. And you look at some of the jobs they did and you think, oh my God, how did we get away with that? Because basically all it is, is it's employers abusing employees. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say our business has changed. Our staff work an average of 40 hours a week, generally speaking. And if they finished early, we let them go home. Some might think it's soft, but we've got, I'm going to blow our own trumpet here, the average length of service is 21 years. And I don't think there's many businesses can say that. So what we've done is we invest a lot of time in trying to give staff the working environment that they want so we can get the best out of them. And to get the best out of them, we've got to give them a bit of what they want, which is not late finishes, not flogging them to death, giving them plenty of staff. And the result of that is I think you can offer a far better service because you've got people that are highly trained, they're motivated and they're happy-ish in what they do. And I think that's one of the reasons why you hear so many horror stories of movers and moves out there, all related to staff because they're pissed off and abused and taken advantage of. Well, the industry can't survive without staff, but you want to invest in your staff and make it so that when they wake up in the morning, they look forward to coming to work rather than, oh God, what? how many hours am I going to be on a job for today? And the only way you can do that and offer that type of working conditions is to charge a decent rate. That's the only way you can do it. And people should know that it can be done. You know, if we can do that in Teesside, the most deprived part of the country, then anybody can do it. They've just got to up the game and up the level of service that they offer so that people want to pay more for the move. 
people want to use us because they're prepared to pay more because they know they'll get a great service. Maybe some removers are afraid of giving decent prices out there. I think they possibly are because high prices comes with quite a caveat. It means that you've got to work really hard to make sure that every job is spot on. And there's a lot of work and a lot of organization goes into making sure that every job is done absolutely first class. Yeah. That's hard work, a lot of investment. But for me, I think it pays off. But I'm sure a lot of people are scared. Yeah, I reckon so. I know certainly from going out and selling my software in the past, yeah, when we do costings and that with people and we say, look, yeah, we put in the hours, the amount of hours that the guys are on a job, the materials, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the price. And more often than not, they go, I can't get that. But that's the price. That's your cost. That's what it's costing you. Yeah. yeah, but I'll never be able to charge that. But then you're working for nothing. Yeah, you will be able to charge it if you can persuade the customer that what you offer is worth that much more than the competitor. Yeah. Yeah. You won't be able to charge more if you just offer the same dross that your competitor does. So what advice would you give to yourself just starting out in the industry again? Advice I'd give to myself and probably Josh as well is to educate yourself. It's a lot of hard work to learn about employment law and to understand the insurance that you sell completely. Understand every aspect of your business so that if someone asks you a question, you know the answer. I'd love to have worked for another company to see how an alternative way of doing things but never did. And I have to say that I'm a bit ashamed that Josh is too precious to us to now for me to send him away to somebody else because he's a driver as well. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't lose him at the moment. No, I mean, I'm, I have a knackered knee and a new hip and a knackered hip. And I took my CPC training during lockdown. So I've got my license back again now, just in case. And I occasionally go out. But we can't afford to take him off the road, but I'd love to. So get some experience with another company and educate yourself as much as you can. It's funny because quite a few company owners have said, get some experience from other companies. Yeah, I think it's because when you are self-employed and you're your own boss, you become quite insular into your way of thinking and you can't see any other way. Go and work for somebody else for a bit. And that would, I think give a lot of new ideas. Josh is going on this uh, BAR study tour to Northern Ireland. Oh, yeah, going to McGimsey's in Belfast. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the reasons that both of us were desperate for him to go, just to see how other people do things. Plus, he's a legendary socialite as well, so. <laughs> I'm sure he'll have an absolutely amazing time with that. Yeah, I hope not. Be careful, though, John, because there's some big beer drinkers out there. Yeah, I think Josh will just stick to uh, snorting cocaine and taking crack. (laughs) (laughs) He's joking, everybody, by the way. (laughs) I am. I am. (laughs) Times have changed since we went out on the town, Colin. Well, yeah, I guess so. They drink sugary drinks that these days, like coloured cider and stuff like that. It's hideous. With straws. Oh, (laughs) good God. (laughs) Paper straws now as well. Yeah. So where do you see yourself in the industry in the next five years? I'm convinced that there is a still a position for the small, quality-minded, independent mover. 
with a good reputation. And I don't really care where the rest of the industry goes, which is a bit sad, but I'm of that age now. As long as we're okay, I'm fine. Where do I see myself in five years' time? Probably working three days a week and just hanging on in a couple more years for my pension. My pension was to sell the business, obviously, but some young kid paid paid, paid to that. Uh, yeah, but it's it's good to keep the family business going. Oh, it is. I agree. I agree. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off then, John? Apart from ride those two horses. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> They're not cart horses. So what I don't do is I don't go to conferences. I don't socialize with the movers. I don't talk about moving. I don't answer calls or emails. What I love to do is... I love to go mountain biking. Yeah. I've got a knackered joints, so I've got an electric mountain bike. I've been doing it for about four years. But my good lady, she mountain bikes as well, and we have some good friends, and we have some absolutely fabulous times go around Europe and all over this country. But luckily, we live near the Dales and right on the edge of the North Yorkshire Moors, so that's brilliant. I love to ski, but again, I'm not sure if I've reached the end of the goal with that because of the knee. And I love to watch Wharfdale uh, UFC in National League North too. Do you actually go and attend? Yeah, every every week, home and away. Good. My wife's the role. She's the photographer. I'm the official Twitterer, which seems quite <laughs> apt. <laughs> and Josh plays for them. Uh, so he's a semi-professional rugby player as oh, well. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise that. And Tom did as well until he had an injury that stopped him playing. But it's a great club. It's, it's an hour and a quarter from us, but it's in the middle of the Yorkshire Dales in a tiny village, and it's a really quite a big, famous club in the middle of nowhere. It's just very special. It's the most beautiful rugby ground in the country, set in uh, limestone walls and big mountains and hills surrounding it and moors. It's just wonderful. Why do you not go to conferences, if you don't mind me asking? I spend all day at work, Colin, talking about removals. The last thing I want to do when I go home, I have time off, is to talk about bloody removals. I know it's ingrained in some people, but I'm not a big drinker either. I love drinking, but it hates me with a passion. <laughs> ah, dear. So the morning, the morning after is no good. Oh, no, the, day, the two days after are no good with me. <laughs> I always find now that the, the older I get, the longer it takes to recover. Yeah. We did. I did go to some um, TMI conferences. They were quite. Oh, good. they were good. I went to one at Harrogate. I don't know if you were at Harrogate. No. There were six of us went from our place, and uh, it was a Mexican evening. And I said, "Oh, I'll be fancy dressed." So we all got dressed up in these wonderful Mexican outfits, and in the lift we met <laughs> David and Avril Pearson, and they were the, he, he had an even better outfit. It was fantastic. We all had false moustaches and Rowena, she just blacked her moustache up a bit. And <laughs> we got in the lift and we got out of the lift and there was only the eight of us in fancy dress. <laughs> Apparently it was just a bit of chilly. That was the Mexican evening. <laughs> so we had, ah, But I bet you all made it for everybody else. Oh, we had such a great time. I think next time they did have a fancy dress, it was uh, 70s, I think it was. And finally, I like to end my podcasts with a funny, moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? Yeah, I've got two. 
Ooh. They're both from, well, one was when there was just myself and my dad on the road. We'd gone down to London. We took a job down. We brought a woman back. She was moving back from London, back to the good old Middlesbrough. And I think it was obvious as to how she'd made her money down in London. There was a huge mirror above the bed. <laughs> she wore this crop top, and when she bent over, she had this tattoo of a dagger on the small of her back. And you could see the hilt, and you could only imagine where the, the point the end was. <laughs> and, and then she started to negotiate with my dad an exchange of services to get a reduction <laughs> in the price. So my dad was a staunch Methodist, and I'm in the back of the room, creased with laughter, watching at this old man squirm because he trying to make out he didn't know what she was going on about. <laughs> but he had to be there, but it was, it was something I would never, ever forget. <laughs> I love it. And then uh, oh, the second one again, I think all good moving stories come from a different era, don't they, when sort of anything goes. And I remember we were doing a job. We got a complaint about this, and I got to deal with it. So I found out exactly what the story was. So it was a job from Stockton to Stockton on Tees. And the woman, it was a bit of a rough house, and the woman had packed all her own goods. And she packed some of it into those lattice-sided plastic crates so you could see what was in the crate. And on the top of this crate was this box with a, what should we call it, a sex toy in a sex toy and harness. <laughs> so it gets into the van and there's a new lad on the job and one of the old lads decides that he will get this out of the box, he will strap it on, and he will chase the young lad around the van <laughs> with this thing flopping like an epileptic snake, honestly. And... <laughs> Just as the woman comes around and sticks her head in the back of the van to ask if the lads, oh, no. if the lads want a cup of tea. <laughs> oh, brilliant. It's the, I mean, <laughs> sorting it out was a nightmare, honestly, because she went, oh. I was fairly sure she wasn't going to go at the press. <laughs> was that her complaint then? Uh, her. She had a point in that her personal privacy had been invaded. <laughs> I nearly said, fortunately, that's all that was invaded, love. But um, oh, dear. Take a GDPR wasn't around at that time. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. At last, we have a sex toy story. <laughs> Everybody's so afraid to tell of them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear, dear. For me, it was her own silly fault. I mean, why would you pack something like that on top of a open-sided box where you could see exactly what it was? <laughs> it was tempting fate. Oh, too funny, too funny. Well, John, thank you very much for giving up your time today. I do truly appreciate it. I do hope it hasn't been in vain, Colin. It took long enough for me to actually get my finger out and speak to you. It's been absolutely hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. It's great. It's great stories. Some great subjects. Covered a lot of things there. I really appreciate your time. I think any mover who's been in it in the old days will have a plethora of hilarious stories to tell that they just don't tell you on air, do they? Absolutely. Absolutely. I get them before and after. <laughs> I mean, had that story happened now, I would have been horrified and 
blood would have flowed. Uh, but back then, it was just what happened. I think we were just much more professional industry nowadays. What was acceptable back then is not acceptable now. No, 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 not at all, not at all. And on that bombshell, stiff up a lick these days. <laughs> yeah, that's the trouble. Yeah, John, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Colin. Speak again sometime. Most definitely. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 29 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice and please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to John Burridge of Richardson Moving and Storage for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, John. If you would like to know more about Richardson Moving and Storage and the services they provide, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Finally, I would just like to send good luck to the Young Movers Council members who will be taking on the National Three Peaks Challenge on Saturday, September the 18th to raise funds for the wonderful Removers Benevolent Association. If you would like to support them in their challenge and donate to such a worthwhile cause, then please do so at www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash B-A-R Young Movers Three Peaks. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving.